You're listening to Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here for an author chat with Ob Ray Lescure about her debut novel, River East, River West, a coming of age story about the daughter of an expat living in mid 2000s Shanghai. As always, the Books and Boba podcast is listener supported at patreon.com slash books and boba, where if you support us as a patron, you get access to our members only Discord server, where we chat with each other in real time, as well as our monthly bonus podcast episode, Boba Chats, uh, where Rira, myself, and a guest have fun conversations about all things books and otherwise. Yeah, so we had a really great conversation with Ob. Um, her background is super interesting because uh, she grew up in Shanghai and went to a Chinese public school and also a Chinese international school. So it was really nice to hear about her experience uh, growing up. And um, I really enjoyed reading this book. I knew that this was going to be Marvin's jam once I like read the synopsis for it. So um, yeah, it was... <laughs> It was great talking to all. Yeah, we read a lot of coming of age stories on this podcast, specifically uh, stories about children of immigrants. Um, so it was fun to read a story that kind of flips that on its head and tells us the experience of a child of an expat living in China. So I had a great chat with Ob about her inspirations for her stories, her setting, as well as her character. So yeah, please enjoy our conversation with Ob Ray Lescure. We are here with author Aubrey Lescure. Uh, she is a French Chinese American writer, and her debut novel *River East, River West* uh, came out earlier this month. Uh, welcome to the show, Ob. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. A legendary show is legendary hosts. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's a lot that of pressure. Has never been something that's never been told to us in our face before. Thank you. We appreciate being legendary in your mind. <laughs> um, so we like to start our show by asking our authors, like how they became a writer. Were you always a writer? Did uh, storytelling come to you naturally or was it something that uh, came to you later in life? Mm -hmm. um, I was always a, a rabid consumer of, of stories, whether it uh, be books that my mom and I would buy at secondhand bookstores in Shanghai when I was growing up or in the form of DVDs and movies and TV shows that um, growing up in China, I had um, a, a very easy access to in sometimes not quite, not quite legal forms, but I feel like that was a huge, huge part of kind of my um, media consumption diet growing up. And I always knew I loved um, reading and writing, but I, I think like many people, it didn't seem like a viable career path, um, mostly in terms of financial stability, especially when I was in college and graduating from college. I actually studied political science, and that's the field uh, I, I wanted to go into when I thought writing is always something I can do on the side or later in life. 
And I took one day at the office at this think tank I joined uh, post-graduation. And uh, everyone there was so excited about statistics and running regressions. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> if this is what <laughs> policy research actually looks like, like in real life, I am not cut out for it. And I saved up my salary from that year in D.C. and started traveling and writing and keeping my overhead costs really low um, by traveling and kind of uh, living on my savings. And that that helped me to kind of softly make the leap from, you know, being a scared college grad, not not knowing how I was going to pay rent to becoming kind of a, a Airbnb hostel hopping backpacker who was, you know, I was, you know, 21 at the time. Um, and then I started writing kind of freelance articles. I started translating subtitles for TV shows, for Netflix. It somehow always circles back into <laughs> TV shows um, and movies. And then uh, became gradually over the years a full-time freelance writer and editor. I found a job I love uh, at a magazine called Off Assignment, where I'm an editor and I have been for the past four years. Um, and it's it's part-time, but I feel like that's kind of the cornerstone of my writing life and writing community. In real life, I also found that in Boston, uh, where I've been living for the past few years, uh, there's a wonderful writing organization there. And I never did an MFA, never did grad school, but they do have a year-long novel revision program, which I think is quite rare to be able to workshop uh, your full novel uh, with, with 10 other people. And it's really thanks to that that I was able to write this book, complete it, have the discipline and accountability. Uh, so yeah, and then <laughs> that brings me brings me to where I am today. The book just came out, I think, two weeks ago. So it's been a wild time. Yeah, congratulations. I mean, I have two comments to to your story. <laughs> First is just flashbacks from I think every like Chinese kid who used to go back, you know, to Asia during summers or had parents travel back and forth. We have like that binder full of like movies <laughs> of like movies that may not be out on DVD yet. Um, so definitely, I don't know if, if, if that was a Korean um, pastime as well to bring back like burned DVDs of like. I mean, we had like movies. our corner video stores with our VHS tapes. Um, I'm sure we had DVDs <laughs> later on, but Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And second, which is, um, I guess, I feel bad because it is such a basic question for our Asian American authors. But you mentioned leaving your DC think tank job to go travel around staying in hostels, Airbnbs. How did, how did your parents take that? <laughs> my, my, my parents were pretty checked out of, of trying to control <laughs> me at that point. I actually grew up uh, with my my mom for, you know, m most of my childhood. And, um, you know, she was a single mom. My, my mom's French and my dad is Chinese, but my mom was a lifelong expat um, in China and she raised me there. And I think I actually really take after her in terms of this willingness to just, you know, get up and leave and move and kind of have a very itinerant kind of lifestyle. Like we never i mean she never owned a house or we we rented apartments um you know year to year and oftentimes we would just move across shanghai just because elise was up and maybe there was a better deal 
um, somewhere else. So I feel like she actually modeled this kind of acceptance <laughs> of just a very kind of unrooted lifestyle. So she couldn't, she could offer no criticism. It would not be accepted. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I feel like it's something that a lot of us wish we could have done, but we were just too either scared of the uncertainty or scared of our parents' judgment <laughs> if we were to do something like that. So that's really cool. That that And it, those experiences definitely, um, you can see those come through in, in your book. My, my book is very, it's, it's no secret that it's quite autobiographical, at least, at least in part. And you, I mean, the, the mom in it is not French because that would be, I think, just very confusing That's to write close. a book in English. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's too close. It's, it's way too close, but it's, it's largely about, you know, a single mom and her biracial teenage daughter living in Shanghai, kind of drifting around and, um, well, at least before the story starts. So there's definitely, definitely some parallels there. Um, so I know that you developed your book in the Grub Streets novel incubator class. Uh, how was your drafting experience and what were some of the uh, most important lessons you took away as a writer? Mm, I uh, I applied to the program it was a really really messy first draft, um, and they 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 want you to have a full book to apply uh, and get in, but I think that they're quite tolerant about the fact that it's probably going to be a mess, and the whole point of the program is to kind of get feedback and. And rework it. So I had uh, my main storyline with my teenage protagonist, Alva, uh, mostly written at the time. And she was my only narrator in you know, my early vision of the book because it was so autobiographical. And to be honest, I'm really not a very imaginative writer. I would say I, I'm a nonfiction writer primarily. I love essays. I love personal essays. Um, I... It, it, I found it to be such a huge struggle to learn to, you know, invent story arcs and invent scenes. So in the very and I kind of learned uh, how to become a fiction writer through the process of writing this book. But at first, I just had a very kind of autofictional, autobiographical, very close to my real experience kind of draft, along with just some random experimental fragments from different points of view. So we had a bit of Alva's mom. We had a bit from her Chinese classmates. I had a whole section set at an internet rehabilitation camp in central China. Um, and my my workshop mates, the single most important and major contribution they made earlier on the process, reading after reading the book, they asked, you know, we see you're experimenting with all these other voices and POVs, but why are we not hearing from Alva's stepfather, um, this man called Lu Feng, who is a Chinese businessman and um, the landlord that her mother marries kind of out of nowhere, um, all of a sudden at the beginning of the book. And it feels like my classmates thought he was in some ways kind of the beating heart of the novel and his relationship to Alva was one of the you know major through lines and how strange it was that I hadn't you know, I was kind of circling around him, but hadn't really uh, dived into into his POV. So then, thanks to that feedback, and with the second they said it, I was like, yes, absolutely. There's there's something there, and in fact, I already know. I know his whole story in my head. Um, I can see all the ways in which it not only intersects with the present storyline, but it provides 
a whole other context to it. Um, and that's when I decided to write a secondary timeline and point of view from Lu Fang, this um, Chinese stepfather's perspective. And the book became a very different book when you have, you know, two narrators. I think something something I learned is that readers will tend to like one over the other. And that's that's just kind of okay. Like you cannot, it's kind of like a fun personality test hearing, you know, which to a storyline a reader gravitated towards more. And it's just nearly impossible to force someone to like both equally. So it's kind of a risk having those two POVs. But I my hope is that they interplay off each other and juxtapose um, in a very interesting way. And Alva's timeline is so short. It's just one year, 2007 to 2008. And then Lu Fang's timeline spans uh, decades from 1985 until it converges to the present moment. So I, I had a lot of fun during this novel revision program playing with constructing that structure. Yeah, I definitely, I think the thing with dual narratives is just you get so invested in one story and then you swap over and they're both cool, but it's like, oh, that ended in a cliffhanger. Should I just skip to the next part when <laughs> they come back? Um, but yeah, I, I imagine it's a challenge, but yeah, I mean, I think it worked well in, in your book. Um, speaking of your book, can you um, give our readers a quick synopsis of River East, River West? Yes, absolutely. It's a coming of age slash family drama slash social novel that takes place entirely in China. And it follows a biracial teenage girl called Alva, who is growing up with her um, expat single mom in Shanghai, who out of nowhere marries their Chinese landlord. And they're all forced to now live together in in this apartment. And um, Alva sees this marriage is very transactional and she starts thinking about what she can get out of this new situation. And she's obsessed with watching American movies and American media. And if she can't go to the U S because she's only 14, she wants to get as close to the U S inside China as possible. So she finds her way to the Shanghai American school and discovers, um, a way seedier and and less pleasant world there than, than she had imagined. And the secondary narrator of the story is Lu Fang, the Chinese stepfather. And uh, we go back to 1985 when China was just opening up, uh, reopening up its borders during the reform and opening era when the first waves of foreigners were coming in. And we find out that Lu Fang and Alva's American mother, Sloan, have a a story, a complicated love story, maybe love story, that, that goes back much further than Alva imagined. Yeah. I mean, so we read a lot of Asian American literature on this podcast, right? That's kind of our, our thing. And, you know, the the child of immigrant storyline is not something that's unfamiliar to us. Um, but your novel themes are like an inversion of that, right? An inversion of what we're used to seeing, which is like, it's a child of immigrant story, but a child of an immigrant in another country, right? Mm-hmm. An expat in China. Um, so, you know, you mentioned that, you know, this was loosely based on your own experiences, but what drew you to, you know, want to tell a story about a child of immigrants in China? I, um, I think it's, it's so interesting that yeah, you use the word inversion because also I've, it's so hard to know how to describe this novel in the vein of immigrant story, not immigrant story. I've also tried calling it kind of a reverse uh, of the, you know, traditional kind of um, East to West, you know, English language immigrant story um, that 
that, um, you know, probably, you know, you guys feature a lot on this podcast. And the reason I, I couldn't write that kind of an immigrant story, even though I love reading them, is I'm just not very imaginative. And I've never experienced that. That's like not, that's not my personal experience. Uh, my parents never immigrated to the U.S. Actually, I I came here by myself when I was 16 for schooling and then um, stayed ever since. But I just never had the experience of growing up um, in the U.S. But I did have the experience of growing up in northern China and Shanghai with an American expat mom. And I feel like for me, I wouldn't I wouldn't call the character um, in my novel um, an, an immigrant. I would say definitely she's more of an expatriate. And I've thought a lot about the distinction between immigrant and expatriate. And I think in China, um, what's interesting that immigration to China, even to this day, is is a very tricky thing to describe. Um, I feel like there's a lot of workers and laborers who maybe come from South Asia or, or Southeast Asia who can truly be considered immigrants to China uh, because they are um, working and really staying long-term um, in the country. And for expats, for Western expats who have come to China, um, it's, I feel like there's always kind of this assumption of transience. Like, sure, there might be working and living here and even raising their children here. It seems to be pretty rooted, but there's no true um, assumption that they're going to stay in China in the real long term, that their children are going to stay here, that they are going to raise, you know, more generations uh, of the family there. It's it's the at least when I was growing up in Shanghai, the expat relocation package was a big thing. A lot of expats were in town because they're multinational companies. You know, send them to China and to incentivize the move basically provided really cushy relocation packages, which entailed living basically in these gated communities and villas and having chauffeurs and maids and service staff. Um, and I... I kind of grew up in between that. Like my mom wasn't a, you know, a corporate expat. She was kind of more of a renegade. Like I love China. I, you know, I want to raise my child there, but I don't want to be part of the privileged expat community. Um, and I wanted to write a book that was not just about expatriation and expats, but rather about the the impact that that kind of flow of population has on Chinese characters or, you know, mixed race Chinese characters. So it really mattered to me that it wasn't an expat story as much as a story about expats and the impact of their presence on, um, you know, lo local Chinese people and characters. Because to be frank, I kind of wrote this book as an anti-expat takedown <laughs> at first I was like there's so there's no books kind of calling out the amount of ind indifference and condescension um, that was just so pervasive uh, in a lot of the expat attitudes and communities that I, I saw and witnessed growing up if there were books or tv shows I feel like they kind of focus on like the thrilling wild like glamorous Asian metropolis kind of lives they led. Yeah, and I wanted like to write a some... love story, right? Like um, yeah. exploring this exotic place and learning about myself. Yeah, and you can swap the cities too when it comes to like 
expat communities because it's such a bubble and they don't mm-hmm. really venture out that much in that bubble. So I feel like uh, a lot of novels where it does follow an expat, uh, I don't know, it just kind of the cities kind of seem interchangeable. Yeah, yeah. And that's, a you know, I, I think that's kind of a real indicator of just how big of a bubble these expat communities can live in and the extent to which their interactions with the local people or the local societies oftentimes take the form of, you know, like service industry transactions. Like the the majority of uh, Chinese people expats in Shanghai interact with are their staff or their employees. Um, as a and and there was just this that so I I didn't even you know hear or really use the word local growing up, and I only. I only started hearing it and this kind of curious tint it, it had in expat's mouth. And when I started uh, attending an international school for two years when I was in high school, I was in the Chinese public school system before. And, you know, no one no one was saying locals. He was just like, oh, like, yeah, everyone's here, you know, Chinese, uh, Shanghainese. And then uh, I remember being shocked as a teenager hearing expats, teens or expats, you say things like, oh, we don't want to go there. That's a local bar. Uh, was the insinuation that it was not cool enough because it was local or, or that the, the glamour to, to, you know, see and be seen really was only worthwhile in places where there were other expats. Um, and it's almost like, you know, the Chinese people in the city that they were inhabiting were just backdrop or as, you know, you were saying, interchangeable. Um, backdrop. And and I thought I really wanted to write a book that called that out in some ways or really shown the spotlight on um, Chinese or, you know, biracial characters and how they were reacting to that infiltration of both, you know, Western media, Western influence and like physical presence of Westerners. Yeah. I mean, Shanghai has been, it's it's a very cosmopolitan city and it's a, it's a place that's been influenced by like there's so many imperial powers, often at the same time, right, throughout its history. You know, as someone who grew up there, like, what were some aspects of, you know, living there that was really important for you to capture in your book? I I feel like I really wanted to capture the, in one sense, the kind of sweet details of a Chinese childhood. Um, and, you know, I... I, I have a foreign passport and I had a foreign mother and, you know, I, I was clearly not a fully, fully Chinese um, school child in terms of, you know, my status or, or, or passport. But I going to Chinese public school for eight years, um, just the small quirks of, of a Chinese childhood, like wearing the uniform and red kerchief to school every single day, doing kind of the morning exercises the flag raising ceremonies, some of the kind of ludicrous, ridiculous things we were uh, learning about in our textbooks. And also, I, I love Family Mart. Like Family Mart is, you know, this ubiquitous kind of 7-Eleven <laughs> equivalent uh, that's everywhere in Shanghai. It was really important to me to have these like homages to Family Mart throughout <laughs> my book. And and, you know, the snacks that students w- would buy after school. Like, I-, I think I wanted to bring that granularity of um, Chinese schooling and a childhood in China to life. And also as, you know, Alva kind of pivots into the expat world, I did want to capture this 
this genuine sense of of thrill that the big city represented that I think even you know as a child or as a teenager there there's there's almost no going back it's like no no city will will be like Shanghai like having that level of kind of just like magic and infinite possibilities in the air and the sense that you know everything is is constantly changing any there's so much to explore um there's just such an electricity in the air in a city like Shanghai I think that's what draws a lot of you know expats who are like you know this is my like yes eat pray love but also like sin city like Vegas version of you know like yes this is a cool city in in Asia I think that drew a lot of foreigners and still still does um but growing up there as a teenager having that it was i i felt spoiled and now yes i'm looking at boston is not it <laughs> it's like it's nothing nothing can reach that level of kind of electricity i'm calling you guys from new york now because i'm doing a, a book event here and i feel like that's maybe the only comparison but yeah it's like a big city childhood that really, really, you know, it's like in my DNA. Yeah, what I found fascinating about your book was how you showed that granularity of uh, Chinese quote-unquote local schools and also just the contrast between Chinese school and international schools. Um, they have their quirks. They're very unique in their own ways. But at the same time, they teach history from a very biased viewpoint. Uh, can you tell us more about your experience, like going from one world to the next and just kind of navigating your identity in those two school systems? Yeah, I, um, <laughs> so you, you may, you may remember from earlier on in the book, Alva gives a real example of um, a, a question that was on her history test, which asked why, uh, why did the Japanese capitulate during World War II? And the answers were like, the American atomic bombs, A, the American atomic bombs, B, threat of a Soviet land invasion, C, the relentless courage of the Chinese Communist Party, and D, all of the above. And this this was a real question on, on a history test I took. And I, I was like, oh, D, all of the above, of course. Like, kind of silly that, you know, C is part of it, but of course it is. And I got that answer wrong and I got points taken off on the test because it was C and C only. The only correct answer was um, the relentless courage of the Chinese Communist Party, which I guess, you know, being being a good Chinese school child, that still burns. And I was like, I need to I need to get those points back one way or another. So I, I featured that multiple choice in my book. But that's kind of representative, I think, of, you know, some of the very propagandic elements that were in our our Chinese and history uh, classes. And I think, you know, in, in terms of identity, for for me, I was kind of, I was, I was an angsty teenager, so I was kind of mad about it in a way that my Chinese classmates weren't or w- would roll their eyes at. Like, it wasn't I stumbled upon this great big secret that some of the stuff we were being taught, you know, were kind of nationalistic or propagandic, but I was really kind of riled up against the institution of like, how dare they, you know, Im- impose this on us. Um, and it, and then the the school kind of stress and test prep really got worse and worse and worse um, as, you know, we approach Zhongkao, a major exam to get into high school. And I feel like 
the one people talk about more is, you know, Gal Call to get into college. Like it really becomes um, kind of a crushing level of schoolwork. And I think as as we approach the Zhong Hao exam, it became clear to me that I had this out all along that my Chinese classmates didn't have. I feel like that was a major moment of a reality check about my identity was I could, you know, complain all day and be really depressed about uh, the schoolwork and, and our kind of the the crushing weight of of our daily lives. But I could I could get out once it once it became too much. What actually happened was I I told my mom, you know, hey, I'm I'm an eighth grader, but I'm I'm actually just depressed going going to school. Like there's no joy in it. This is just so crushing. And you know, she said, okay, well now we it's it's true that you have you have options. You can go abroad for um, high school or university. So if it's too much for you now, we can look at international schools. And my Chinese classmates did not, you know, they did not have um, that same out and those same options um, nearly as easily. So I think that was a moment where I was like, first, um, you know, first, first truly, truly realizing the kind of forking paths in lives that you know I had access to and then international school my mom could not afford the big fancy ones like the Shanghai American school or the British school because they are so expensive and they don't give out financial aid because why because the companies are you know paying paying for the expat kids anyways so I went to the semiconductor manufacturing international corporations employee school. It was like a semiconductor Taiwanese company that had opened this kind of budget international school. Um, so I went there for two years and I played soccer, which is how I got to travel around to the other much fancier schools and kind of, you know, that opened my eyes to expat adolescence in Shanghai. Um, and I think in terms of uh, the stuff we were learning, I remember in English class, we were reading a Passage to India, An Empire of the Sun, these novels, kind of, you know, really uh, colonial era novels set in set in Asia. And there was very little talk of, hey, the expat life that we are living in right now kind of models, you know, in these novels, people um, only really interact with local people as their staff and they're living in, you know, villas and gated communities and going to international school and have all this help and privilege. And, and we were, you know, talking about colonialism in those novels, but our, like the life, expat life all around us still looked pretty much the exact same, (laughs) but there was, you know, very little acknowledgement of it. Um, So I think that also, you know, inspired me to really highlight those aspects in contemporary China in my book. Yeah, that's definitely some some dissonance there. Because <laughs> um, like for us too, like in the States, like when we were growing up, those are probably the only books that even reference Asia that we we were assigned to read too. So it's kind of interesting that those are the also the books that are assigning you to read when, while you're already there. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the, the idea was like, <laughs> the, these are these are cool books because we, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're living in Shanghai and we're foreigners. But there was, again, back at the... Back in the, this would be around 2008, 2009. I just don't think there was a level of, you know, like cultural impetus and awareness and discussion around 
privilege or neo-colonialism that like it, I don't think it would really occur to the teachers um, to, to make those parallels. But now in hindsight, I, <laughs> I really see them. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact that you're like half of your book is set in like 2007, 2008, I was taken aback as a reader because mm-hmm. uh, we've read books where a lot of the times uh, Shanghai is like set during like the Cultural Revolution or mm-hmm. like uh, the Great Cultural Leap. Uh, but, you know, I, like I'm reading it. I'm like, Game Boy, I am legend. These are <laughs> contemporary things that I remember from my youth, but it's, you know, it's in a modern uh, Chinese setting. And I just, it, it just kind of like took me aback because I'm like, oh yeah, like the China that I'm used to seeing in uh, literature, it's, you know, it's kind of like the old China. We don't really see mm. modern China. And I just want to ask you, like, how did you go about um, having your characters navigate and reinv- reinvent themselves as China also reinvents themselves? Mm, that's I I really I really love that you, you know, picked up on those those little um cultural details because I do think that most English language literature that exists about about Shanghai is is either very genre like noir, like triad novels or like historical fiction like the glamorous kind of art deco colonial era like 1920s uh, glamorous Shanghai and I wanted to write a book where there would be this kind of maybe like offbeatness and uncanniness to readers where it's like oh this is just like yeah the, the granular teenage life was very similar cultural references but it's it's in a country where you know maybe a lot of readers have never set foot in or, or they're not familiar with that kind of childhood or adolescence and yet um, what I was hoping to do was remove the sense of like filtering or translation or mediation when we read about, you know, childhoods in, in, in countries we've never visited, there can be this sense of a certain remove, like, oh, I'm reading about someone's upbringing in a foreign country. And it's kind of hard to express how I attempted to do that. I think it's by aggressively including just so many kind of little details that were true of, you know, whatever was um, being released on the internet or, or are happening circa 2007-2008. I kind of wanted to bring that verisimilitude in of the kind of global reach uh, of media and how there was just so many common threads to um, all of our adolescences. And yeah, in terms of um, the characters reinventing themselves as China reinvents itself, I think I chose 2007-2008 as a the you know, particular year most of the action is set in because it was the year of the Beijing Olympics, which in China was kind of seen as the year when China would have its like debutante ball on the world stage and be like, behold, we are, you know, we have risen. We are, we are so powerful. And this is kind of the, the, the golden height um, of our glory it was a really big moment in China but unexpectedly, just a few months before the Wenchuan earthquakes in, in Sichuan happened, which was this major devastating um, natural disaster that also kind of really shook the nation to its core. 
And a few months after the Beijing Olympics, we had the global financial crisis, which, you know, of course affected China, but also in a major way uh, affected the expat community in China because all the aforementioned fancy uh, expat relocation packages, a lot of them just disappeared overnight and companies were pulling people out of the country. You know, expats were, it was a massive exodus. You know, they no longer had the villas, no longer had the international schools. They had to go go back home and no longer have access to this glitzy life that was always kind of a timeshare in some ways uh, to begin with. So I think I really wanted to have those kind of major geopolitical kind of like current event um, landscape as a backdrop. Although I, I will say learning, you know, how to write a novel, it, it, they're more in the backdrop than I'd hope because I learned that I had to center the story and the <laughs> characters and their development first and foremost. I had like pages and pages and pages on the Beijing Olympics. And now I think there's just like one discussion or, or one line alluding to the fact that it was on TV. But I, I hope that kind of the energy of 2008, which is such like a, it feels like historical fiction now. Talk, I, I feel like it was like yesterday, but I guess we must admit that it was well over a decade ago. Um, but there was like a particular energy to China at that time I wanted to capture. I couldn't write about current day China. I feel like it's it's changed it's so much. It's so different now. Live, yeah. It's so different. Yeah. It's like a tech kind of like a vaguely tech dystopian vibes every time I go back. Like I went to my local supermarket a few years ago. This was pre-COVID and they like scan my face to deduct money from my WeChat account. And that's how like you could pay for groceries. And that just blew my mind. You know, I was like, this was... That sounds terrifying. <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> so I feel like to write an, a, contem- a true contemporary novel about current day China, I would need to live there for like five years to truly, you know, appreciate and observe like all these bizarre details that every time I go back, it's... There's just a new surprise. It's like a Black Mirror episode happening over and over again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so your story follows your main character, Alva, as she, you know, it's her coming of age story, but she's entering her like teenage rebellious years, right? And it was really cool to see what teenage rebellion looks like, you know, in other countries, right? Like countries where, you know, they might not check IDs because drinking age is 18 and people who work at convenience stores don't really care. And she does a lot of rebellious things, Um how much of that was, you know, drawn from your own experience and how much mm. that was something that you draw from like either friends or stories that you've mm. heard? Yeah. Did you ever uh, uh, dye your hair blonde? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, oh, well, I didn't dye my hair blonde, but when I first went to international school, I did dye it red and it was bad. It was a, it was a bad look. Um, but um, yeah, I wanted to, I think I, I did want to capture some, some ways um, in which teenage rebellion happened in China at the time that maybe uh, most people, unless they live there, don't really know. So, you know, cyber cafes and KTVs, which are basically uh, these, you know, karaoke um, halls, they were like two really big uh, and, and malls also um, were, were really big features of kind of teenage, like, I guess, like outlets for like pressure and release um, for Chinese students, but I didn't know personally, you know, Chinese classmates who went out and, you know, like drank and went clubbing. That was kind of 
exclusively expat teens doing that. And I think there, I mean, race definitely plays a huge element in that I don't think a nightclub bouncer would see a Chinese teenager and just let them in. But you have a pack of, you know, 15 expat girls show up and it's like, oh, sure, you know, for there's there's no ID. Here are some open bar VIP, you know, tickets and, and you guys go on in. And it was um, really shocking the extent to which um, nightlife played a big role in, you know, at expat teens' lives uh, with no no real oversight or rules or protections at the time. And thankfully, a lot of the bad things or reckless things that happened in the novel did not happen to me personally. But in hindsight, it's there were, you know, a thousand and one opportunities for for danger and disaster and, you know, real consequences um, to, you know, just being so young and and just being set loose in in such a big city and almost, you know, um, allowed to or incited to do a lot of these dangerous things. And in writing the novel, there was a lot of exploring the what ifs, like what if, what if someone wasn't watching and what if this did happen or what if this, you know, sequence went to its logical conclusion, which, which would be, you know, really horrifying. Um, and, and some of it did happen to people who I knew or, you know, things I'd heard about. Um, but yeah, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully I, um, I, you know, emerged, uh, relatively, and scathed from a lot of those dangerous experiences. But now that I'm 30, looking back at that, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I would never let my child, you know, anywhere, anywhere near those, um, those, you know, those, I guess calling them opportunities is weird, but yeah, that like, that kind of life. Where the situation, like, yeah. Yeah, situations where like absentee parents or just absentee kind of like, like, institutions like um yeah i think i think absentee parents were also a big feature of that adolescence i was trying to describe uh speaking of parents and expats wielding privilege like being able to go to bars uh without having their ids checked uh sloan is an interesting character sloan uh being alva's uh mother uh, she's a foreigner and she has a disdain for the expat community. But at the same time, she's not above wielding her privilege when it benefits her. Um, can you tell us about like how you went about crafting her character? Yeah, absolutely. I um, I think I really wanted to play out a, a psychological experiment of what if a really kind of plain, mediocre, average white woman um, who's, you know, all of those things in her home country came to China and felt so special and so received, you know, so much attention um, that she grows addicted to it to a point where her life becomes a kind of endless um, performance or, or attempt to accrue more and more of that attention because here in China, she's special. Whereas if she goes back home, um, she wouldn't be. And so I feel like that almost, I don't know, it was, it's kind of a caricature or a satire in some ways. And I actually had to work on, you know, making her more of a 
real person as opposed to just this one kind of villain figure of, of you know, this like white woman addicted to being told her Chinese is so good or that she is so beautiful, which, you know, I think it's, it's um, good to have Alva as a character remind the reader sometimes that a lot of these things are just kind of like etiquette or niceties that are being said um, and not necessarily reflect the fact that, you know, like Sloane is truly this like goddess movie actress, but she starts thinking she is because of this, you know, endless kind of um, attention and like kind of special status. Um, And so, yeah, that's, that's what I was attempting to do with her character. And I did also want to show that um, even though she wasn't a corporate expat or she was truly kind of toiling away and and the character and she's kind of breaking as the years goes on because her comparative advantage and specialness is decreasing every year as more and more foreigners are coming into China, younger foreigners are coming into China. She's no longer this kind of OG expat who came in in the 80s. Um, And and I think, yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious to think if you kind of saw some of that satire come through of, yes, like a woman addicted to specialness who you can guess as a reader probably isn't all that special back in her home country. Definitely was able to pick it yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. I was just like I, interested because I'm like, I was like, would you consider her an expat or an immigrant? Because I just feel like mm. she's like in the middle because she does toil away. Like you said, she's a single mother. She's not rich. And, you know, she, it might not be perfect Chinese, but she's, she actually knows the language and she's mm-hmm. putting her kid through like Chinese public schools. So I'm like, huh, like, would she be an expat in, like, our definition of expats mm-hmm. these days? Or would she be an immigrant? So I thought that mm-hmm. was, like, a fun experiment <laughs> that you put in. Yeah. And I kind of think as, you know, all of us have international backgrounds. We kind of lived in, on both sides, like, Eastern and Western. So I think when we run into someone like Sloan, out like in, in, in the wild, you know, our, our our BS meter is kind of going off sometimes. Yeah, right? especially the fact that like like what is it? Yeah, um, like it's like oh, a white woman is dating a Chinese man, where it's like 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 they praise the Chinese man for finally like capturing like the white woman, but what if it's like mm. the inverse, where it's like a Chinese woman mm-hmm. with a white man? It's like oh, you're a sellout. You're like mm-hmm. a terrible human being, a race traitor. And I'm like, wow, okay, like. <laughs> that's not fun (laughs) yeah that's that's definitely one of the many layers of these kind of gender and racial dynamics that I was trying to capture um in the book that I observed growing up in Shanghai I remember taxi drivers being one of the key key demographic when I was growing up who would ask you know oh like your mom your dad who's who's a foreigner and when when I said oh my dad's Chinese and my mom is is a foreigner they would say oh yeah your your dad is so so good like so amazing and i just yeah i I remember that so distinctly being like hmm if it were the opposite they they probably wouldn't be doling out those compliments yeah and i wanted to touch a little bit about your other point of view character lu fang who is um introduced to us as alva's new stepfather at the top of the story and you know something interesting that we've been seeing a lot and like we mentioned we do read a lot of coming-of-age children of immigrant stories on this podcast is 
we've been seeing them pay more attention to the stories of the parents as well as the kids, because we forget sometimes that, you know, our parents are also fully fledged human beings with hopes and dreams, um, even before they had us, right? They're full people. And so Mufon's story is interesting because it follows him as he comes of age as well um, during a very tumultuous time in Chinese history, right? He's introduced as like the brightest boy in his village, um, sent out to university and ready to rise above his station in this new China. And then while he's in the university, the Cultural Revolution happens and almost overnight, his future is kind of taken away from him, right? He is forced to leave school. Um, he's sent to a rural village for re-education. Um, and as a result, when we see him again in the 80s, even though China is going through economic revitalization and growth thanks to opening its borders to trade again, he finds himself one step behind um, a lot of his younger peers who didn't have to go through um, what he went through and you know have their futures intact. And his story is actually really common, right? Like there's a whole generation of people who lost their future during that time period. And um, I want to ask, like, can you talk to us about developing his coming of age story and how um, that was developed alongside Alva's own coming of age? Mm, yeah, I really wanted to kind of show um, this, yeah, this kind of inversion, to use that word again, of of Alva's sense of self and sense of the world in in the sense that at, at first she sees Lu Fang as this kind of inconvenience um, in her life or, or this minor character who's now playing an outsized role. And she, um, she just thinks of him as, you know, kind of a, a, a small parenthesis in her own existence that's unwelcome. And then when she, and when the reader was, you know, dramatic irony finds out that actually the opposite is true in the sense that Alva's story is such a small parenthesis in this much broader, um, decade-spanning, complex kind of love-hate saga that is happening between Sloane and Lu Fang. So I really wanted to play with a sense of zooming in and out of, you know, time, but also um, this, yeah, this idea that the roles we play in each other's lives when you kind of switch the timelines, everything is kind of shrinking and expanding in these hopefully interesting ways. And that's why, for me, it was important that Wu Feng's timeline kind of parallels um, the, the development of China in those decades that we follow him through. So, you know, we first find him shortly after the end of the Cultural Revolution, during the Reform and Opening Era, where he's he's already kind of um, a bitter man and an old soul, even though he's not that old. He's in his 30s at the time, but he felt like so much has been cut short um, or denied to him. And yet there's a sense of possibility in the air because the borders are open, trade is, is beginning to boom. Um, you know, the world is coming in to China more and more, even if it's very difficult for him to get out without visa or connect, you know, connections and, and wealth. And then we, with his timeline, I really wanted to start kind of hopping through the decades at almost kind of this faster and faster space until the two timelines converge. And I treated some of his later sections almost like short stories because, um, you know, we, the action needs to be very contained because the next time we were going to see Lu Fang again. It was going to be 
you know, 10 years from, from then or, or quite a long time. So there was the sense that the, the action cannot be quite so continuous. It needs to be self-contained. And that's how I came up with these kind of fun prompts for myself. Like, uh, you know, the 1994 section has to take place over the course of a weekend visit to Shanghai when the World Cup final is happening. Or this next section um, has to take place over the course of um, a few days over the Lunar New Year celebration. Um, or this next section has to take place over the course of a single taxi ride across Shanghai. Um, and I feel like having those prompts in my head, and you, you can also tell that the prompts are like shrinking and shrinking and shrinking in terms <laughs> of the, the time space they inhabit. Um, and I think that allowed me to write his timeline as this kind of decade hopping, almost experiment. And I think also very deliberately, I wanted it to be a rags to riches kind of traditional story where, where you're like, oh, like, you know, the, the fate is finally smiling upon him. Um, but because we begin in the present timeline, we also have so many questions about, like, where are these people from his past? What happened? Um, and this, I feel like in, in that sense, like the absence of, of, you know, people who you meet in the Lufang timeline become hopefully kind of a driving tension uh, through the novel. Yeah, and I love the fact that uh, Lufang, like his, he sees America as like, you know, a ticket to prosperity. And uh, with Alva, she's she's pretty interesting with her relationship with America because she's never been there. And, you know, she romanticizes it. And I thought it was really interesting that these two characters who are from two generations, they have uh, pretty much a similar romanticization of America. I'm not sure if America still has that image to uh, other countries nowadays, <laughs> but yeah, it just it, it did kind of like remind me of um, like the great American dream from an mm. outsider's perspective. And it's just like, it was really interesting to see uh, how those two characters kind of parallel each other in their, in their desire to come to America. <laughs> mm. yeah, I think they call that soft power, right? America's soft power. <laughs> and like we, global like, culture. <laughs> I mean, with Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, we're mm -hmm. very good at uh, propaganda and selling this lifestyle that, you know, like America is all all glam, but yeah, yeah a lot I, of... I feel like, <laughs> I feel like for Alva that that kind of Hollywood soft power is definitely her catnip, and it's I would I wanted to be really careful when writing this book to not make it an assumption that uh, America is actually better in all these XYZ ways and, and that's why the characters want to go there. I also wanted to exaggerate the level of kind of illusion um, both of them have about the U.S. So for, for Alva, it's because, you know, she's like just binging on this American media diet where she thinks that being an American teenager is like the TV shows she's watching, you know, Gossip Girl, 90210, all those CW shows of that era. And she feels like she's being denied that version of an adolescence. Um, but I hopefully readers can pick up that her view of the U.S. is 
It's like the movie version of the U.S. You know, she watches at one point Thelma and Louise and she's like, my mom comes from the country where everyone's wearing cowboy hats and cowboy boots. Like I, I wanted to kind of dial up those details to kind of remind readers. No, she I mean, she has a very kind of flat, illusionary view of the U.S. And I think for Lu Fong, similarly, I didn't I mean, he's, you know, doesn't really know much about the country, has has never been there. It wasn't so much about what the, you know, concrete, real benefits of being in the U.S. versus being in China, where it was more the sense that he he wanted to be able to go see what's beyond. He wanted at least access um, to these opportunities and 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 to, you know, step out of the constraints around him if he wanted to, but but he he cannot or he was he was denied that and he's more grating against the constraints around him rather than, you know, really idealizing um, the U.S. as a country. And actually, this is a decision that my editor and I talk a lot about in revising that um, we actually changed quite a few instances of America to just the West to be like, it's not, it's not like country specific. Like, why does he want to go to the U.S. and not to the U.K.? You know, it's, it's just like, it's more about um, the ability to step out rather than idolizing a, a specific country. Uh, as someone who is not Chinese and cannot read Chinese characters, mm-hmm. I thought the way you wove Chinese pictograms into your narrative was really interesting, how it represented um, how Lu Fang felt in his life, felt mm. trapped, and how um, there were just like there were just some um, characters where there were no translation at all. Like you only got what you saw on the page, mm. and the only way I like learned what those words were was through audiobook or uh, mm. looking them up somehow. So were there ev- were there any concerns uh, in the beginning when you were? Um, uh, concerns about like visual storytelling not translating on uh, onto paper not translating to non-chinese readers that's that's such a such a good question because i i thought a lot about each choice you know when i when i would put a chinese character on the page and not translate it so, sometimes you know i would put a character and kind of explain that the pictogram and kind of why was there? And I think in, in this way, maybe some some readers who don't speak or write Chinese at all might actually now be able to recognize a few of these characters um, just through the explanations. But um, I was actually really influenced by reading this novel called 99 Nights in Logar by Jamil John Kochai, um, where he, it, it's also a coming of age story that takes place entirely in Afghanistan. And he pretty liberally uses some untranslated Pasho words. And even there's a whole chapter um, in Pasho that's not translated. And I thought that was a gutsy move. And I was kind of like, I want to do that too. And of course, it's uh, for in, in my book, you know, I thought, okay, some in some instances, readers can pick it up from context. In some instances, it's just like, a small joke that Chinese reading, you know, readers might pick up on, but like, it's okay if, um, if, if, you know, English speaking readers don't pick up on it. And, and there's one instance where I did what I tried to do what Jamil did. It, it's much shorter. It's not a chapter, but Alva and Lu Fang basically recite 
um, two lines of, of the same poem together and I do not translate that poetry. And for me, that was kind of a, a, a moment where I was like, it's, it's a moment kind of between them. Or if you can read Chinese and read that line of poetry, it's also a moment between, you know, all of you. But in some ways, it's okay that readers don't know what those um, lines translate to. It's almost like what's, what's more important is that the two characters are sharing this moment with the poetry. <laughs> I did really love that scene. And, you know, I, I can semi-read. I took like a couple years of Saturday school here in the States. Mm-hmm. So I know enough to like be able to interpret because a lot of um reading Chinese characters is not only knowing the characters but also interpreting like the components mm-hmm. of characters mm-hmm. um but I one thing that was missing from my education my Chinese education was the poems right the um the proverbs mm-hmm. and so um I thought that was a really cool way to show this like Chinese connection between between the two characters mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad so glad you felt that way reading it yeah well your book has been out for a few weeks now. Um, how has how has that been having your debut out in the world and getting having people read it and have thoughts about it? Do you, are you one of those authors who like don't read any reviews or are you like are you checking those? <laughs> <laughs> I um I I was checking them at first, I have to admit, because when you know when you're kind of in this anticipatory period right before your book comes out, and I feel like even in the days right afterwards, I felt like I was like a monster hungry for like any bit, any bit of informa- information, any kind of reaction I could get. And then at, at some point um, after the book, you know, was truly out in the world and there were more Goodread reviews coming in and things like that, I I had to stop myself from looking at them because there was a sense of like overstimulation or a, a cacophony of all these different reactions. And, and I realized I um, I need to kind of, let go of the book and the story and have it be its own entity and interact with the readers. And if I, if I, if I'm the, you know, author just lurking, reading every, every comment on Goodreads or every, you know, like Instagram comment section conversation about the book that I could find, um, it would actually start living in my brain and perhaps affecting how I think of the story now or how I'm going to write the next book in a way that felt dangerous um so i think you know of course professional reviews it's, it's hard <laughs> to not read them or when when my friends when when people write me um you know specifically to tell me how they felt about the book i, I always appreciate that and especially hearing from um asian american or asian diaspora readers um and readers who have grown up um in asia or or who are immigrants in the us and maybe ha- didn't grow up in asia but they that, you know, they're seeing more about maybe um, their family or, you know, understanding some stories through the book. That has been really, really hugely meaningful. Um, so, yeah, I'm, it's, it's really meaningful to me to be able to reach more um, Asian American readers and Asian diaspora readers, because I feel like in some ways this is a book hugely about race and identity, even if it's in a slightly more non-traditional setting. Um, so, yeah, I'm... That's why I'm happy to also be on this podcast. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you. All right. Well, I guess that will um, bring our conversation to an end. Um, oh, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Bobo. We're so glad to have you to talk about your debut. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're busy with, you know, book tour and, and promoting. Um, but 
you know, gotta ask. Um, are you are you working on anything else now? Yes, I have a few chapters of my next book, which actually will be set entirely in France, but with an Asian American protagonist. <laughs> so um, once once I once I'm done with the book tour travels, I look forward to crawling into a cave and starting work yeah. on this next book. Are you allowed to give us like a teaser what it's about, or is it all like under wraps? Right oh, now? it takes place at. Uh, a rural country house in Provence and our Asian American protagonist is following her wealthy white boyfriend to their family house. And I call it a retelling of the picture of Dorian Gray. There's some oh my gosh. surrealist yes. <laughs> elements to it. A lot of hedonism and the kind of David Lynchian darkness takes place and there might be some mysterious mechanism at work, but we're never quite sure. But yes, so these are that's wow. a few teasers for the premise of the story. That Amazing sounds, pre-ordering. That really cool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that. Uh, good luck with the new book. Good luck on the rest of your book tour. And yeah, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Boba. Thank you for having me. And that was Aubrey Lascure, the author of River East, River West, available now at booksellers everywhere, including the Books and Boba online bookstore. Um, as always, if you purchase books from our online bookshop, um, you not only support the Books and Boba podcast, but also your local bookstore. So definitely check it out by going to booksandboba.com and clicking on our bookshop link. Um, before we go, uh, Rira, can you remind us what we are reading for book club this month uh, for January 2024? Yeah, we are reading Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City by Jane Wong. And it's a memoir about Jane Wong's uh, experience growing up in a Chinese-American restaurant on the Jersey Shore. Uh, Trigger warnings for this book. Um, It involves gambling addiction. So if that is something that uh, you are triggered by, just proceed with caution. Yeah, um, I'm almost through um, this book. And you can definitely tell Jane has a background in poetry because... Her, um, her passages are very, very poetic. But I'm looking forward to discussing this book um, with all of you at the end of the month. Um, as always, if you've already finished the book and have thoughts to share, please let us know either on our Goodreads forums or our Discord server if you're a Patreon supporter. And with that, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thanks again to Aubrey Lescure uh, for joining us to chat. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Bill Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. 
We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.